Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. Uh, today's podcast is on how the British government or the British state has tackled the issue of Islamism. So I'll just give you a brief background about why I am doing this. So as you see, uh, my guest today is Charlotte Ritterbur. Charlotte is back on the podcast. Charlotte was a former government counter-extremism coordinator. And uh, she's worked in this field and uh, I've been trying to read what Charlotte has spoken. I, I saw a few interviews uh, where she was also explaining what basically they used to do when she was part of that system. So we went a little bit back and forth. And then there was a specific event that happened in Wakefield that kind of, you know, what piqued my curiosity about what's happening when it comes to Islamism. And I reached out to Charlotte and she was nice enough to agree to come back on the podcast. So Charlotte, welcome. Thank you for having me, Kushal. It's a pleasure. So, Charlotte, maybe we can start over here. Can you explain what exactly happened? Uh, uh, and maybe you can use multiple examples to explain what is happening. Uh, uh, we can start with Wakefield and what exactly happened there and maybe some others too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Wakefield has been difficult on a number of levels. Um, so just on, on the base of it to run through the facts, what happened was um, a, a school pupil who has severe autism um, bought a Quran on the internet and brought it into school. And um, it's unclear whether it was his friends, but him and, and a group of other children had the Quran. Uh, it's been reported that it was in the playground, that it was scuffed, um, kicking it potentially. Um, but there's unclear, but either way, it, it ended up having uh, some scuff marks. Um, and this led to the the boy having death threats and the mother and a counsellor and an imam being brought into a mosque in Wakefield um, with the mother then apologising profusely for the offence she's caused and how she's not going to press charges against anyone making death threats. Um, and the counsellor, the imam, also the, the police actually uh, joined them there didn't make any remark about the death threats at all um, and talked about the sensitivity here with uh, offence to the religion and how um, the, the mother is very you know, apologetic. She's now taking lessons in Islam and her son is engaging with learning about Islam and respecting it. Um, so so this, this was very concerning, but even more so when we dug deeper and we looked at the imam and we looked at the mosque in particular, um, the, the imam himself has been engaged in saying that Muslims who celebrate Christmas should be punished um, and that there should be no sort of cultural integration um, and, in fact, is, is, is a real problem for cohesion and integration in, in the UK. So the fact that this councillor chose to sit on this uh, table alongside him and... Um, criticize this autistic child um, in a bid, in a bid to bring safety to, to Wakefield. Because the real fear here, what, what drove this response, this very troubling response, it was, it was a, a very difficult watch and you can watch it, you can find it on, on YouTube, the video of the mother apologizing in front of the congregation, an all-male congregation as well. So she had to wear the hijab to come in and speak to this, this full-male congregation, no women were allowed. Um, so what, what makes it more troubling, though, is the reason why this happened. So this happened because the head teacher at Wakefield is only a stone's throw away from Bately Grammar School. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but the teacher at Bately Grammar School 
drew the Prophet, had showed an image of a drawing of the Prophet Muhammad in his classroom. And he has been in hiding and has changed his identity, has been hiding for two years since. And the, the protests that were outside Bately Grammar School is what the head teacher at Wakefield was frightened of. So that's why the head teacher at Wakefield decided to engage with the police. It was recorded as a uh, non-criminal incident, um, but an incident of, of hate nonetheless. This this boy, the autistic boy, scuffing the Quran, um, and the the head teacher wanted to work heavily with the mosque and the police to make sure his school and his teaching staff were safe uh, from the kind of protests and death threats that were seen at, at Bately. But it really makes us have to think here the situation we've got ourselves into that we are now um, negating death threats and appeasing extreme blasphemy, an extreme blasphemy ideology in the UK um, for the sake of the safety of, of our communities. And that's what I take away as very concerning. And also, don't you think not only is it a safety issue, but at somewhere at the core of this issue is what are the values of British society? Mm. Does British society now value i don't know how else to say it blasphemy now in a very weird way mm. um i mean if you look at the case studies you could make an argument that we have uh, the tacit implementation of blasphemy at a communal level now if you go back to uh, it all kind of started with salman rushdie in the satanic verses and we had mass protests and burning of the books and then the fatwa against salman rushdie who was recently stabbed you know this was in the 1970s and uh, now we're looking at, was it last year that he was stabbed, I think? Um, so that fatwa actually originated from a British man who travelled to Iran and spoke with the Ayatollah and uh, asked for there to be uh, something uh, done about Salman Rushdie. And soon after, I mean, you might not be able to completely link it, but it seems very likely just days after the fatwa was issued, um, so a lot of people consider the, the Rushdie affair to really have started in the UK and the protests really broke out in the UK. Um, and from there, we've seen a series of, of incidences. And I think one that really stood out for me was Asiya Bibi, who was on death row in Pakistan um, for blasphemy. It was um, a forged case, actually, because in Pakistan, there are cases that just get made up. You know, there might be a falling out in a community between families and they make up blasphemy cases. It's quite common. And Asiya Bibi was, was a victim to this, a sort of false blasphemy allegation. But, you know, whether it was blasphemy or not blasphemy, I really don't think that's the issue, really. The issue was that she was on death row for, for critiquing the religion, as it were. Um, and we refused her. We, the British... Uh, the UK refused her asylum because we were worried about civil unrest on our streets. So she she's uh, in Canada now. That is insane. I yeah. remember this case. The Asia yeah. Bibi was from Pakistan, if I remember correctly. Christian from Pakistan. Yeah, yeah she was accused of uh, in 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 Pakistan of blasphemy. I clearly remember this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, luckily she ended up going to Canada. There was a huge uh, problem. Uh, it, it's sad. I mean, I thought freedom of expression was something the Western world valued a lot. And, and just to see uh, the West capitulating when it yeah. comes to free speech, uh, it, it, it's actually, <laughs> I don't know what word should I, it's, it's actually disgusting. Like, I'm not saying we have free speech in India. It's, it's even worse in India. 
for the record and and now my audiences are going to be triggered oh you insulted india in front of a britisher well these are facts <coughs> whether you like it or not so now here's let's let's now jump to point 2 which is counter terrorism and uh, uh and something very specific which you had mentioned in your in your interviews uh, with british media which is called the prevent strategy now could you explain the entire process what were you doing when you were involved there all uh, for mm-hmm. a period of a few yeah. years Yeah so I was a prevent practitioner for a couple of years and then I was a counter extremism coordinator. Um so prevent is a part of our counter terrorism strategy which is split into four strands. So we have prevent, protect, pursue and prepare. Um so prevent is really our preventative measure. So it's about working in the pre-criminal space. It's about de-radicalizing people. It's about finding those that have started to engage with radical violent groups but haven't yet committed a crime. Um so it it is about trying to um prevent someone joining for instance the Islamic state or a far right violent extremist group. Um so we work predominantly with um people in school, youth um to university age predominantly. um and a lot of the training was with school teachers and universities healthcare workers um and it's a kind of whole sale approach so social services involved mental health is involved schools are involved at all trying to um prevent people from becoming radicalized so when when you say you work in schools so like what exactly does that does this mean like a council mm. counseling counseling teachers counseling students what what exactly is the british government involved in then so we're training teachers to understand what radicalization might manifest as so has someone started to explore islamic states uh on their computer or talk about to their friends about the intention maybe to join so you know we had three girls four girls leave from one school actually uh, from Bethnal Green and the the case of Ashmeen Begum has been big recently in the news and she's one of the girls that left from that school so the question was could that school have noticed something and done more could there have been an intervention could those young girls have met with um an imam and been talked out of the decision that they made before they made it and that's really where prevent exists so 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 uh it is solely in schools or it it could also be working with local mosques in the local mm-hmm. communities mm-hmm. and stuff like that yeah it it also works uh, yeah across communities so there's work done with the mosques there's work done um with all faith institutions actually um and health centers and hospitals and universities anywhere where you've got frontline workers that are meeting with the, with the community and have a closeness with the community that would be in some way able to have that sort of communication and that understanding would be trained in what the the flag signs are what we're looking for and um and then that would then be uh, a phone phone would be picked up a phone call might be made to myself to say are we really concerned our we've had parents call so uh, here is a case example with no names um so a parent called and said really concerned about my son he seems to have taken his passport away we don't know where it is um it, his behavior has changed we're a little bit concerned that he might be trying to travel somewhere um and so we had communications with the with the parent and the school and that person had stockpiled money in their locker and their passport and were intending to join the Islamic state 
Um, so that, that's how it happens. Or you might get a call and actually it turns out it's not really a concern. So you'll have teachers that might call and say, I've got concern and we'll say, we don't really think that's a concern. And then that would be the end of the conversation. That wouldn't go anywhere. I mean, sounds like a nice thing. Then, then, then when I forgot the name of the media, uh, channel where you you were talking about this in detail that the bbc actually the, the there was one in bbc and there's one more i forgot where you were also oh, talking. gb news yeah gb news i'm sorry i'm not i'm not very good with british media names but uh in the bbc there were there was a very specific point that i remember mm. which was raised about uh, statistics as to mm-hmm. uh, the number of people in the community that actually support the the strategy which is the mm-hmm. prevent strategy itself mm-hmm. now uh one accusation that is hurled all the time about stuff like this is that uh primary uh, number one is racism because these these strategies can be racist and can be disproportionately targeted at minority communities mm-hmm. that is point number one uh point number two is that they really don't have support from minority communities mm-hmm. so uh, what what do the surveys in in england yeah. uh, uh, credible service talk about mm-hmm. that so let's go there first yeah so the prevent strategy came under review so i'm just going to talk about two studies actually so the prevent strategy came under review the reviewed i think it took at least two years very in-depth um and the conclusion from the review is actually there was a disproportionate attention paid to far-right extremism um, because we're looking at a the vast majority of those in prison for terrorist offences are Islamist. However, the um, la, the the amount of referrals are uh, the higher amount of far right. So we've got this sort of uh, mismatch where the far, referrals coming in from schools and hospitals are predominantly far right. However, those in prison are predominantly Islamist extremists. And then when you're looking at the um, intelligence services the actual cases that are being pursued the live cases are by far uh, islamist outweighing far right so what we were seeing was that we were equipping the frontline workers and training them um, in sort of equitable measure on far right islamist extremism and in fact if i gave you um, the kind of training i would give a school right now i would uh, as i would use an islamist extremism case and i would use a far right and i would just just go back and forward between the two as my examples. And we would leave the schools very much feeling like that these are the two things that they needed to look for in equal measure. And then what you do is on top of that, you deal with the fact that schools are not very comfortable. In fact, society in the UK as a whole is not very comfortable in tackling Islamist extremism. It has been um, sort of claimed by Islamists that to tackle Islamist extremism is racist and is Islamophobic. So, then you have the general public really concerned about tackling the issue. So you've got a, a strategy which is training these frontline workers in both in both ideologies in equal measure. And then you have them nervous about dealing with Islamism. So, of course, you get this huge amount of far right referrals, a lot of them being dismissed. They didn't actually make it to channel because they were irrelevant. Um, and so what we found was that we were spending a lot of the public's money on training in a way that was resulting in disproportionate attention to a threat that was not the biggest threat. Um, And what we found, you know, on the back of the prevent view really is that we need to do an awful lot more to help society understand, and now we'll come to the other piece of study, the Crest study, uh, that actually um, 80% of British Muslims are in support of the prevent strategy. Once the prevent strategy is explained, 
in what it is, what it does, how I've explained it to you, the reality, because Islamist extremists have twisted it and, and tell a, a complete fabrication of the prevent strategy. They've made up cases, they've exaggerated cases, they've done everything they can to demonize it and to get rid of counterterrorism and counter-extremism in the country and all efforts to that end. So, so when you actually explain what prevent is to the general British Muslim public, you have 80% in favor. Um, and when you ask them if they're concerned about Islamist extremism, you have 64% of them concerned to very concerned. That's just 4% less than the 67% of the general public that are concerned to very concerned. Um, so you see that, that, that actually the narrative that we've bought in the UK about prevent being uh, Islamophobic or racist has very much been created by those in that extreme section. Um, but that has been bought and that's what we're suffering here. We're suffering in an ill in society where we have, we're not able to understand uh, what the, what the th real threat is and how to tackle it, and we're not brave enough to do that um, because of what Islamist extremists have told us. Now, first of all, can I just have a terminological issue? I, I just don't yeah. understand this. So I'll give you an analogy to explain why I find this so weird. So in America, as if they have changed the map of the world. So there are Asians and then there are the Indians who are different, Pakistani, Indian, like there is South Asians and there is like, why am I not Asian? So when Americans use the word Asian, they just mean people of Southeast Asia, Chinese, oh. Koreans. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very funny. Now, you just said the British government says they look at far right extremism and then there is Islamism. What the hell is Islamism? Isn't it far right too? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's something that I really find frustrating is obviously if you take the words away and you look at the actions and the beliefs. So if you look at their hatred towards LGBT community, um, the wanting for women to be in, in servitude to men, the hatred towards different sects, um, the supremacist thinking, uh, that's the right wing. That is the right wing. But because it's packaged inside a minority, and because of the way the UK is approaching multiculturalism and minorities, we have this blindfold that we're not able to see that this is right wing. This is this this is what I would like to call Islamic fascism, you know. And I think if we change the wording and we include what it really is, the fascist nature of it, maybe we'll be able to get the general public to understand that this is something hateful that needs to be tackled. And actually, the insulting thing is not tackling it because by not tackling it and saying, oh, we don't want to insult Muslims, are we saying that this is what all Muslims adhere to? Yeah, which is which is my exact problem because, okay, let's say we have certain fascistic tendencies. We can have universal benchmarks for tendencies towards fascism, tendencies towards supremacism, tendencies towards misogyny, tendencies towards blasphemy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then we can say that if any human being who can walk, talk and whatever, they if they behave like this, these are those tendencies and we will classify them like that. You could be a far right fascist. You could be a far left fascist. Right. For example, now Antifa. Antifa is clearly far left and they I don't know what else to call them. They are fascists. They're very fascistic or supremacist in the way they function. Mm -hmm. But do you think this this is by design this 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 inability now inside global intelligentsia to look at problems with actual scientific lens uh, like with through a scientific lens and 
this un- unwillingness is actually leading to bad diagnosis and bad diagnosis then leads to bad solutions and then bad solutions leads to overall societal decline um um i think that the book we we have in the uk and maybe it's the same as what you're saying maybe i haven't quite understood you but i think that it's to do with local politics um so it's to do with the fact that the way our country is made up and the, the way therefore voting is reflected is changing and local authorities in certain areas do have voices to answer to that they believe so this this is this is where it gets very confusing because you have local authorities that believe in a in a racist way in itself really that the muslim community is intolerant and is adopting islamism so they believe that prevent is racist and islamophobic like the local authorities because that's what they're being told by a distinct minority but they believe that to be extended to the whole muslim community so they themselves think they're being left wing by not criticizing and not getting involved with the prevent and not causing a problem for uh, the muslim community because they have bought themselves that this extends to the whole muslim community so we've we've got this issue where they believe that they're going to lose votes they're going to lose political power if they don't submit and protect and do things like we saw at Wakefield and do things like um be difficult with the prevent strategy and critical of prevent strategy and things like this they think they're going to lose votes in their local elections which just shows they they have not understood the support from the wider british public about uh, for the prevent strategy the british muslim public so i'll give you i'll maybe i'll explain myself better because i think it's a it's a ideological problem now which has it's a concept creep that has come globally and universally everywhere in the left wing uh, intelligentsia and i'll explain this even better using misogyny as an example so that you understand now misogyny is something that can be easily said it's a universal thing every community every tribe every sect every culture has misogyny there is no culture that will not have it there is literally no culture on planet earth but everywhere the left has decided that uh your dominant culture it, in the case of the united kingdom the dominant culture mm-hmm. would be color centric and religion centric for example right the majority religious community and the majority race in india it is not race centric it is religion centric the majority religion so it's very easy to condemn misogyny inside the majority community in india but because of this oppression olympics or victimology poker these are not my terms i've heard these terms mm-hmm. you know this mindset that has come inside the the left wing meme globally they 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 will not call out misogyny in certain cultures yeah I, I, yeah so this the same mindset yeah. I, what i hear you i think the same mindset has kind of crept into oh yes, yes, yes. terrorism and where yeah 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 yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah no as no, absolutely as i was saying yeah no uh, the prevent you found that we were approaching islamist extremism with timidity um and what that really means is we have got into a situation in the uk and and i put it down to the fact that we sort of have a, a post colonial mindset and we have a like a a hangover sort of white man's guilt 
Um, and that makes people very cautious about doing anything that could be considered in any way um, negative towards a minority community. Um, and, you know, that's buying into the fallacy, as I've already repeated, that this extends to the whole minority community, which it, it does not. So that that's in part the problem. But also, is, as you're saying, the fact that there is an aversion to tackle these issues within minority communities. Um, and you get to this sort of cultural relativist uh, perspective where you say sort of each to your own, every culture, every value system should be equal, should be respected equally and should be left to themselves. Now, there are certain lines that we've managed to to work through. And that one of the main ones is FGM. It took us a while and there was a lot of debate around, you know, this is their culture, so we'll leave them to it. And then there were enough books and horrific accounts and stories about the the horrendous effect of FGM that eventually you know we got to a place in the UK where we outlawed people being able to travel to other countries to have FGM done so we had you know we had pupils young kids at school were in the summer holidays going uh, back to somewhere in Africa and then coming back to school having had FGM done on them um, so we've now outlawed that and there has been I think one case um, I think there's been potentially one prosecution you know the numbers are really low um, and it's, it's, it's very difficult but that I would say is an example of where we have managed to say right in this cultural relativist model that is not okay you know there's certain lines but the lines are out here you can't see how far my hands are going up. The lines are out here and we have to be really, really clear that we won't tolerate any form of intolerance, any form of bigotry, any form of extremism and hate towards other communities, no matter where it's coming from, no matter what skin colour it is existing within, whatever minority group it is existing within, it should be able to be tackled, it should be able to be tackled head on. And I think that's what the preventive view is saying, is that we have been weak, we haven't been strong in this and we need to hit this head on. So, so what do you think right now is, if if you were to give, let's say, suggestions to the British government as mm -hmm. to how do we improve the British government's prevent strategy? So are there any specific inputs that you would give to the British government Mm -hmm. And have you given them? And what is the government doing? Because I, I find this so weird that that the British government can't even... like. How can this be racist? I, I'm still not able to wrap my hand around that. That's what I'm saying. Um, it, but I think you really like... You've hit the nail on the head, though, in the way that the West is sort of approaching this issue and the, the timidity and the way that we seem to only be able to criticise those that are in perceived positions of sort of authority um, and not able to lay any criticism towards those that may be deemed a minority group. Um, and so I, th I think that is the main issue that the government has to overcome is that societal perspective. Um, so exactly what you said, we need to change the way this is seen. We need to see this as the right wing. Everything is seen very binary, right, left, good, bad. Everything lives in sort of boxes. Um, and that just needs to be completely shaken up and everyone needs to take a step back and to look at this fresh without these boxes and without these categories and without these labels. So this is a really hard thing for the government to do. Um, and Suela Breverman, our Home Secretary, has said that she's going to endorse every recommendation for the Red Review. And there were 30 plus recommendations. Um, and one of the things she's done straight away is on the back of Wakefield, she says she's going to issue new advice 
to schools and police and how they deal with blasphemy issues, give them more support and ensure that they don't actually endorse the blasphemy or endorse those that are um, spreading extreme blasphemy ideologies. So she is reacting, she is going to have conversations, she's going to issue new policy and support. So that's really, really, you know, optimistic. Um, but what we need to see is we need to see a complete uh, sort of re-recruitment of those that work in prevent. Anyone who doesn't quite understand what the extremism is that's facing this country and how important it is to tackle and how important it is um, to, to not be shy of that, anyone that doesn't get those three things needs to move on really and there needs to be a re-recruitment of those that do understand and can do the job. Um, and we need to stop having prevent practitioners employed in local authorities so we're trained by the Home Office and then employed in local authorities. Now, local authorities are uh, different sort of political constituencies. So I was in a Labour constituency. Whilst we have a Conservative government and the Home Office, the Conservative Home Office, if it were, was training me whilst I was employed in a local authority that was Labour that had issues with the prevent strategy and was concerned about votes and image. So that needs to change. You know, prevent practitioners need to be independent. They're going to be trained to do a job that doesn't fit politically with councillors and people with their own political ambitions, that, that just doesn't work. Um, and I think that, that they would be my main recommendations is that we need a re-recruitment, we need a societal change of understanding and approach, which is going to take time. Um, and we need a different way in which these people are employed. So so this, this almost sounds like you're saying that prevent practitioners need to have kind of a tenure position where they don't they they can do their research properly like, like you know how when a professor in a university gets tenure they mm. they can maybe challenge and approach a certain research related issues fearlessly because they're not scared about their job so in 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 that sense uh, a prevent practitioner a trainer mm -hmm. they, they can actually go and work if they have some sort of a security and job security where they are not going to be bothered by the local politics but then True. so but then a natural follow-up to this would be that if there is this plan then what was that lady who became an isis wife i forgot her name what the hell was that woman? shamima begum yes shamima now so so how so if i was to ask you like how would prevent deal with a Shamima Begum now that she isn't she back like she's back right no no she wasn't oh, she's still uh, there we didn't give her citizenship back oh so, so she's stuck with uh, in ISIS land now yeah 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 that that we she went to the court of appeal and they found that she was still too much of a security threat um and she hasn't had her citizenship given back so let's say, how would a prevent uh, practitioner have worked with Shamima if I was to ask you this question? So, so when prevent she was in the United Kingdom. Mm, um, well, I don't think prevent necessarily would deal with her if she returned because she would be looking at uh, facing charges of um, being a part of and supporting terrorism. So they would be looking into the evidence of what she did to. Um, actually support the terrorist efforts in the Islamic State. So there's discussions about whether she actually helped made suicide vests and she was in part of the enforcement, the female enforcement group that enforced what women should wear. 
Um, so there's, they're trying to find more evidence for that and create a case there. So it would it would go to um, the point of convicting her of the crimes that she committed um, by joining and being a part of the Islamic State. Um, Prevent's role in Shamima Begum would have been before she left. So Prevent's role would have been working with the teachers in that school, which it did heavily afterwards, but it would have been working with the teachers of that school to have them do like assemblies and stuff for their kids that would have been about different forms of extremism and how extremist propaganda works. And, you know, something I did is I would go into schools and do an assembly on conspiracy theories and fake news and um, extremist propaganda. And I would even show like bits of propaganda and break it down and show how uh, the this group was trying to persuade you and that this is false and here's an exaggeration. And this is how they've used the music and the imagery to try and entice you so a lot of that work is now being done in schools to try and get young people to be more critically minded and uh, less persuaded by the propaganda of the likes of the Islamic State, but also to work with the teachers to identify if someone was becoming radicalised. So these young girls were not very religious and they suddenly did become more religious, were going to the prayer room and talking about travelling to the Islamic State in the prayer room <coughs> and also amongst each other sort of in and around the school. They were showing each other videos they were talking about the husbands that they might have. They were starting to think about how they would save money. Shamima Begum stole jewellery from her mum and, and sold it to get cash to be able to buy what she needed, to be able to get her ticket and buy what she needed to sort of take it like a passage and to get what she needed to leave. Um, so all of these things could have been picked up along the way if a school teacher was paying enough attention uh, or a parent knew who they could speak to if they had a concern. And so that's what the prevent strategy is about. That's what it would have done. All right. Now, from whatever little I've read, and I don't claim to be an expert, which is why I'm asking the question, um, social media has become a tool for recruitment, if if I have understood this right. Uh, recruitment by all kinds of extremist groups, whether it's Islamist groups, whether it is what the British uh, uh, far-right groups um so that that could be one of the things. So so the, does the prevent strategy also have a very dedicated team that looks at social media or do you guys have tools on on social mm. media and stuff like that? Yeah, so we actually there are think tanks that have quite a keen role on this. So there's a think tank, tank called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which heavily looks at social media and extremism through social media. Um, and the prevent strategy had funding for um community organizations, think tanks, things like that, that would be working to tackle extremism and, and help communities be resilient to radicalization. So these sort of uh, think tanks and programs would have got funding and that's how they kind of work in that space. Also, they, for example, I was working at Waltham Forest Council for a year as country extremism coordinator, and they had a program called Digital Resilience, which would specifically go into schools and talk about extremism and radicalization on social media and how to build a more resilient um students and so we had one uh, specialist teacher who would go in and do that with with the young people um so yeah definitely that's exactly kind of what what prevent would have done the issue though i don't know if you've read this in the review uh is that some of the funding actually went to organizations that were uh spreading islamist ideas and were a part of the problem um and this is all part comes back to the fact that we had people in prevent that were poorly recruited uh, that didn't understand Islamist extremism properly and were trying to look politically palatable um, 
uh, you know, and essentially for the sake of appeasement and not wanting to upset people, money went to the wrong people. <laughs> okay, I, I should yeah. not be laughing, but this this sounds so stupid and funny yeah. at the same time. It's like, how do I fight terrorism? Let me give money to the terrorists. <laughs> that's, that's... It, it, it's like been one of the major flaws that's been found is that earlier on, um, those that were recruited that really didn't understand the area, and the, at the very beginning, at the very beginning of the strategy, there was a, a strategy in which there was work with those that were maybe linked to the Muslim Brotherhood or uh, espoused some soft Islamist ideals. Was the thought was work with the non-violent Islamist extremists to help prevent the violent Islamist extremists, right? That that was done away with. That was decided that wasn't working. And the reason why that wasn't working is because the very narrative that Islamist extremists, the non-violent ones, hold is the narrative that those then build violence on top of. So, it, you know, not all non-violent Islamist extremists become terrorists. However, all terrorists have adopted an Islamist extremist mindset. So you, you have to, to tackle that mindset. and You can't work with the people that hold it to tackle it. So that decision was made after a few years that that shouldn't happen anymore. That's not how we're going to do this. It's not working. Um, however, there were those that continued to not understand that, that maybe had their own ideological issues. Um, and yeah, money went to the wrong places. So another natural question that I had in my mind when it comes to the social media issue is how would, because Prevent works with the government, how would the government solve the the privacy issue here? Because at the end of the day, if you are monitoring social media, I mean, if profile is open, it is open. But at the end of the day, where does that line get drawn? Obviously, now, uh, like in America, they have the NSA. I'm sure the equivalent of it must exist in the United Kingdom, like it does in India. But like, so how does this happen? Like people monitor people's social media. And like, if there are red flags, then you can go and approach that student. No, I don't think, I mean, not in any experience that I had, were we actively monitoring anyone's social media. I mean, I'm sure that there are red flags. For example, it's actually illegal to download um, the Islamic State um, magazines um, and things like that. And I think that the security services may be aware if someone is downloading illegal terrorist materials online. However, that just isn't the capacity to monitor people's social media accounts. So I don't think that is happening. I am sure if someone comes across something on social media and happens to think it's a prevent concern, that that could lead to a prevent referral. But there isn't like a unit that's set up that's monitoring social media, you know, as a rule. Okay, that that's interesting because like I've, as I try to understand this, it's a noble initiative uh, that the government is trying to work at the community level, but so so what is the state? of affairs if i was to ask you right now is it in a in a in a limbo or is it still working or a functioning thing mm. or or is the government going to defund it or it's going to expand mm. the the capacity of prevent yeah so it's it's carried on all the time while the review is happening you know it's continued and it's still dealing with an awful lot of referrals and cases um so i think last year there was over a thousand um, Islamist extremist referrals and um, that then went to channel and there were interventions. 
So there's a, a, a large number of people still moving through prevent. So it, it, it really does, it needs to be there and it has real merit, you know, dealing with people that are actually being stopped from joining the Islamic State. I mean, I had another case example where a whole family were prevented from leaving um, with young children because the, the mother was found looking for primary schools in the Islamic State. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's very important, but it hasn't got the balance right. And it's overemphasized one ideology that is less of a threat, which has caused the whole thing to be disproportionate and skewed and public money to go into the wrong places. And obviously public money has even gone to is, Islamist uh, organizations. So there's been a lot of problems, a lot of issues. Um, it's not about getting rid of the strategy at all, because um, the Prevent Review did find that the strategy and the way it's written and its intention is actually very positive. It's the way it's been implemented and it's the politics around around society at the moment that's caused it to derail. So the Prevent Review's conclusion was Prevent needs to come back to its core and needs to come back to what it was set up to do. And it needs to do that unashamedly without fear. And it needs to find a way in which it can do that without being stifled by local politics and political sensitivities in the current climate. Um, so the, the future for Prevent is a complete sort of reshuffle and uh, focus. Now, we've got a year and a half, I think, until the uh, elections here in the UK. So there is sort of a thinking that um, we may not have a Conservative government next. So it's about working as well with how this then moves into potentially Labour government. So there, there may, I mean, this, but actually Prevent was uh, created by Labour in 2011. So it is a Labour actually initiative. Um, but politically, it's something Labour has actually moved against for its own political reasons um, in the last few years. So we'll see what happens if with the government changes. But don't you think in the last decade or so, the Labour Party itself has changed ideologically? Like what the Labour Party was, let's say, in 2011 mm -hmm. and what the Labour Party is today... Um, Mm -hmm. right those are two yeah. different entities yes although now we have Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn was a considerable wake-up call for a lot on the left I think people really realized that um the the politics had gone too far and it was a scary moment for for Labour so I think now with Keir Starmer and um the left is beginning to mend and heal um so we'll just see see how that progresses really so so basically what i seem to understand is that uh don't go far left if you come back you can do this like okay so what if the government changes i'm just saying, mm -hmm. and what if they shut prevent down what could be the possible first order second order third order effects of that then See, I think, you know, when it comes to national security and it comes to our counterterrorism strategy, there is no amount of party politics that should be able to get in the way of that. And what we found with the Prevent Review is party politics and local authorities, sort of local elections, have got in the way of that. And that's been found absolutely, um, you know, with, without a doubt that that cannot and should not happen. And, and the idea is that that will not happen again, because when it comes to national security and people's safety, that needs to be taken outside of and above politics um, and voting. So I hope, I'm optimistic that, yes, Prevent maybe will change a little bit, but there'll be 
there will still always be some kind of program there to help people not become radicalized to try and stop people before they commit the crime um i don't think that will be eradicated completely because i think we've proven with the numbers and we've proven with the way prevent has been received on sort of an international scale like the worth of having this strategy the worth of having something in this space so i really don't think labor could get rid of something existing entirely but maybe it would reshape things fair enough okay now i'm going to ask you some of the live viewers questions so i'll go from the first one and then go to the top one uh, someone has asked is there a long game like in the government strategy where they do not believe in like maybe using a hard hand in curbing religious extremism that the person used the mm. word specifically religious extremism not mm. islamism mm. so i guess it's a more generic term mm. to cover all kinds of like is there a conscious effort from governments yeah. that they just use so a soft hand there is never a long term strategy in the uk that is part of the downfall is we exist on four year cycles and often our strategy is really disrupted by that and really disrupted by elections and that's why i think the prevent view has been really important to say this needs to exist outside of this space and we need to get serious about it um so i think that that's actually part of the problem is existing on a on a on a four year rolling basis so um we should have a long term strategy for dealing with this and the prevent strategy should should be that but what's happened is politics have got in the way of that that needs to stop happening fair enough okay so the next one is um okay <laughs> this is about sh- sh- i don't think so you should be in a position to answer this but someone is like why has england been criticizing uh uh people of england been criticizing the anti illegal immigration policies of the government and uh, asking for shamima or shamima begum to be brought back i don't think so you're in a position to answer this so it's okay you can skip it i don't think so you're the government representative so you cannot say what the, what the hell the government is doing so 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 that's okay i just read it because what was the not. the question was about what like it's a like, double how standard how can people yeah it's like a double standard don't you think well uh, shamima begum in my op- opinion is like the extreme version so i guess but it's very interesting i yeah. i had a op- discussion i'll tell you uh, i don't think so that that podcast is up but there's a friend of mine he's an uh, uh, he's valid when he's a comic ex muslim he's in the united kingdom and i remember when this case was there him and i had this discussion and he being a pakistani ex muslim was of the view that shamima should not be allowed to come back and i was of the view that maybe she has a right to come back but that's for some other day yeah but- I- Yeah I mean my view is while she is considered a security risk um it would be safer to have her actually in a UK prison however we've got a bit of an issue in the UK at the moment in that we don't have uh, retrospective laws on uh, terrorist offences so when she joined the Islamic state there wasn't actually a law that prohibited that exactly for a woman that wasn't going to be an active fighter um so there was real concern that she would come and that there wouldn't be law to cover her and um i remember a yazidi um victim who now works for the un and she was i think she was kidnapped and sold sold into sex slavery from sort of like 9 years old and it's a really sad story and she said something that really stuck out to me um she said she's really scared that islamic state members 
are going to now just move back into society. And she used the example of a male exam state member. She said they're just going to shave their beer off, beards off and walk free. Um, and, you know, I think that that's what really hit me when I think of Shamima Begum is if the laws aren't in place in the UK to serve her a heavy sentence. And when she's still considered a security threat by intelligence services, you know, we're, we're bringing a potential threat to the UK that we're not sure if we can incarcerate. And so I think that's where the difficulty is. And I think what we need to do is we need to work on those laws because I absolutely do think she should be in a UK prison. She's just not safe having her floating around in a camp. So, uh, but this is something that needs to change in the UK. We need to be ready for it and we need to, to, to handle this properly. That's actually exactly the view I had uh, in that discussion. Mm -hmm. I had said she should be brought back to England, tried as a security threat and put in jail. She should mm -hmm. not be left outside. So, yeah. So actually we ended up being on the same page, but yeah, I, but yeah, I got a lot of abuses then from a lot of people that, Oh, how dare you say she should be brought back. I was like, yeah, she should be tried and put in jail. Well, you know, she could be a real threat if she is radicalizing other people. Um, and if she's in isolation in a British jail, then that, you know, that puts a stop to that. Um, and it's, it's also example setting. And it's also things like thinking about the victims um, of, of the Islamic State and what they really need for their retribution and moving forwards. I think that's who we should be thinking about. Fair enough. All right. The next one is, this is more of a cultural issue, which we were talking about earlier on, is Islamism, uh, the price British society willing to pay to hold on to maybe some things from the past, mm -hmm. like monarchy. Example, they have lost the moral justification. Do they think they have lost the moral justification to deal with far-right extremism. It's very interesting. The user actually agrees that Islamism and other far-right extremism should be clubbed together. But do you think it's a fundamental problem in British society and that's why they're kind of stuck with a rock in a hard place? What is in they're not able to tackle the far-right because they're not tackling the monarchy? Well, because they're apologetic, right? Because they don't know how to deal with it. Uh, I guess from from a person outside, they think the monarchy is something bad. And now mm -hmm. there is a certain section in British society too that, that has started speaking against the monarchy. Although I know yeah. service shows most British people still like the monarchy. But do you think they are like, okay, we'll deal, we'll let the Islamist bit go so that we can justify the monarchy bit? Or do you think that's the reason or they're just confused people? That's all it is. No, I don't think that, like, I, I don't think these uh, issues can be connected that well. Like, I think that the the reason why they're not able to tackle Islamist extremism is because of a sort of uh, a, a fear of being branded racist or Islamophobic in the main, and um, because of a misconception over Islamist extremism and how much it is within the Muslim community, and also to do with this aversion to tackling anything within minorities. I think the discussions around um, the the monarchy are actually opening up. Um, especially, I think, with Harry's book and stuff like that. And, and, and I think that, yeah, I mean, the only way in which maybe there is a link is maybe this sort of post-colonial guilt. If you want to, if you want to, like, obviously, like, link the monarchy to that and this whole idea of being embarrassed to, about former behaviour of the UK, which then makes people not want to look to be interfering in any way in minority issues, because it's sort of like, that's the history of the British people. We don't want to continue in that vein. Um, so you could link it in that way, I guess. Okay. So now this is a good question. This question I actually enjoyed. To what extent does Islamism dovetail into 
organized crime like drug trafficking human mm. trafficking and is is it used by criminals as a shield and its impact mm-hmm. on the state of law and order in uk and what is it up with uh you know like i was looking at and this person is right because i was looking at statistics of conversion to islam is an uh, and there is a constant effort through these extremists who are then jailed they go in jail and they convert other people to their ideology so how how is this going to be tackled yeah i think that's really interesting there is a real issue with radicalization in prisons um but what i found fascinating recently and there, there is links between um gang behavior and gangs and uh, and terrorism and drugs and islamist extremism but what i find really fascinating i'm looking into it at the moment is the whole issue around andrew tate and incels and islamism so um there is a group of very popular um sort of like famous young uh islamist men who involved themselves in sort of uh, mma fighting boxing um a lot of very masculine very aggressive sports they're physically very big and they they come across as very dominating um they're very supportive of andrew tate in fact they have podcasts and stuff just like this <laughs> but they have people on including andrew tate <laughs> and they have podcasts where they talk about you know how women need to stay in the kitchen and how you know the man needs to come back and need the revival of the, you know the traditional man and islam is the space for the traditional man and i see a real issue and i think andrew tate is is a case example of those that are in the incel toxic masculine sort of space moving in and banding with islamist extremists because they are singing the same song you know and they are also getting famous from it and getting popular from it and they've got sort of like 500,000 followers on youtube and then their youtube videos get millions of views um so that's that's a real concern for me that that's a new area where we're seeing a development of this la- interlink between sort of crime and young male uh, islamist extremists they were very very prevalent in leicester by the way and they were like very awful towards the hindu community t- taking the mick out of like vegetarianism and the physique and stuff like that and saying you know we're big we fight and you know we're the muslim patrol and we're here to you know, get rid of the the hindus talking about that because that's a perfect segue i did not know you were going to mention this because somebody literally has asked this question what is the government aware about people who did these things which is mohammed jab and many other people so mm-hmm. is prevent aware of these people does prevent mm-hmm. try to talk to these people too like reach out to mm-hmm. them no this is something that i really baffles me um because and this was my personal issue when i was in prevent as i tried to work to tackle these people more directly and i tried to set up something called arts against extremism which was getting young people to understand extremism directly and tackle it through creating art pieces so they'd meet with like a former islamist extremist a former far right extremist someone who'd experienced fgm um all these different things and they'd learn about hate and they'd learn about misogyny and then they would create like art it didn't it didn't finish um because i was actually sacked so uh i found the prevent space to be exactly what William Shawcross in his review said it was i found it to be timid to be sort of anti direct uh directly opposing islamist extremism and in fact my manager once told me to box clever when i was trying to directly shut down an islamist extremist event he was like you know don't be so direct uh you need to box clever around these issues so 
the thing is they know they do know they absolutely know and in fact i was trained at an early stage within the home office about who these individuals are what the organizations are what the narratives are what the risks are but then when it comes to practically doing anything about it the prevent strategy just just didn't quite get there um so let's see what happens with the review if that gets better but actually the only people at the moment i think that are in a real place to tackle the likes of magic freeman muhammad hijab shakil asfar are the likes of myself in think tanks and the press, the press that are able to be open about it. But it, it, it's a really hard area. But just one more question. Like, I did not know Andrew Tate existed until a few months ago. Like, my life was so happy <laughs> in my own little corner. And then there were these few young um, Indian children who started sharing his videos on social media. I was like... How stupid do you have to be to actually be inspired by this? But you, you you actually hit the correct line there. Like Andrew Tate has become the king of incels. I don't yeah. know how to say this. Yeah. He 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 is the incel Sith Lord putting mm -hmm. this whole game on. And mm -hmm. like uh, and then suddenly now he's like milked this whole thing that I'm a Muslim and Mm, he's married in cell with Islam and he's done it from a massive platform. Teachers are now saying that they're the thing that they're most concerned about. He's coming up in like classrooms. It's actually affecting the way students are speaking to their teachers in the class, especially if it's a female teacher um, and the way kids are treating each other. So it's a real concern. And the fact that he's brought Islam into this and then he's also then gone and spoken on some of these Islamist channels and bolstered their viewings is a real concern for me. Yeah, and like I saw a breakdown of what Andrew Tate does on this brilliant YouTuber, CoffeeZilla. I, if you guys have not seen it, I would highly recommend everybody to go and check out that video where CoffeeZilla actually oh. took a course of Andrew Tate. He went to the whatever it's called, Hustlers University or whatever that yeah. garbage is. I mean, I have to give it to CoffeeZilla, man, to go through the torture of going through the, the Tate world. And he actually broke it down. Like it's, it's actually... Uh, it's a sham. The whole thing is a sham. And yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, carry on. It's a sham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they have like people who have wasted hundred thousand dollars, fifty thousand pounds, twenty-five thousand dollars. I was like, what kind of a moron do you have to be to actually go there? And this is before he became a Muslim. And now you add, I am Muslim because he realized that I'm getting atta attacked as a you know, he's actually exposed Western society more than anyone because he realized the moment I use the Muslim card, these people can't touch me, mm. right? That's mm. what he's done. Otherwise, before that, he was a white guy who's a Christian. He's open to be attacked. But now what do you do with them? I'm a Muslim. So isn't he like, you know, he reminds me of that guy. I, again, I'm being very open here. So there's this, I think, uh, teacher in, in, in Canada who's basically... Uh, taking the mickey out of everyone so he was basically against the whole this uh, gender is a social construct uh, thing uh, of one year ago and then suddenly one day uh, did you see this person like the guy with the big prosthetic breasts going around in the classroom oh my goodness okay I, I didn't I see but I was going to say that, that, that you picked up on the fact that it was a sham like I heard that his whole house and everything is all done up to make him look really, really, really wealthy. And there's lots of sort of signals that he's super wealthy. There's 
bars of gold in a in a sort of glass fronted chest and everything's done to make him look incredibly wealthy but the feeling of the the journalist that went in to look at it was that very much that a bit like oh what was that is Anna Karenina there was um no Anna there was a show about this woman that created all this false persona of wealth and that got people to invest in her and he's sort of done the same thing where he's created a false persona of wealth and got people and made wealth out of being out to make himself looking wealthy and successful it's yeah, very so interesting I'm, how he's done it no no so this is like in evolutionary psychology you call this the free rider problem and this is the mother of all free riders <laughs> amazing yeah so Canadian teacher with giant breasts claims they're real as she takes on cyber bullies and body shamers. This person apparently, if I remember this correctly, allegedly was the complete opposite a year ago. And now this person has <laughs> gone 180 and is like, okay, I'm going into the classroom like this. And then parents in Canada was like, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> this is the classroom. I'm not making this up. This is real. This is actually happening in Canada, I'm sorry, I can only laugh at this. It's just yeah. hilarious. It's it's hilarious. So I think Andrew Tate is just doing this at a very massive level. And he's just gamed the system. He's like, now deal with me. I'm Muslim now. What are you going to do? He's gamed the system. Yeah, yeah. Or he actually saw it really speak to him ideologically because the extremist interpretation of Islam is deeply misogynistic and he saw this as actually a validation of his thinking and that he had a whole tribe he could now subscribe to. And he had a very famous podcast, if I remember correctly, with Muhammad Hijab too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a blood, uh, podcast called Blood Brothers that um, is run by a, a new site called Five Pillars that is very much all kind of about this with these young men being very toxic. Um, and that's something that he was supposed to appear on, but then he got arrested so he couldn't come on. But it, aren't his lawyers in his defense argument saying, hey, it's all a sham. This is the role he's playing. He's role playing. He's not really that serious. Isn't that something that his lawyers are giving as an argument? Yeah, but they're finding more and more witness statements and there's just more and more evidence. He keeps, did he not come out and then get put back in again because they kept more evidence? I think. Um, yeah. I haven't looked too much into the trial, but... Um, yeah, I mean, he's trying to gain that this is all just a part of his game and everybody's taken the what's the red pill or the blue pill. And he's he know he understands the society and society doesn't understand him. And he keeps saying things like, you know, don't don't be surprised if I'm dead tomorrow because society wants to kill me and stuff like that. Yeah, he's not that important. But all right, before we wrap it up, Charlotte, uh, anything else that you wanted to cover? Uh, uh, any other points you think that we need to talk about? Um, I think, you know, I think that covers it. I think really, you know, prevent at its core, I think is, has the right idea. And I think it's important to try and safeguard, especially young people into being radicalized into extreme violent groups for the sake of themselves and society. Um, and I think it's really good that we've had this review and that we're able to now think about how we can do it better and take it more seriously. And society needs to start kind of understanding the approach to, to hate and intolerance. And we need to move beyond sort of this multicultural multiculturalism which puts us in these different boxes of minorities and not minorities and actually be able to move outside of those labels um so hopefully we will eventually um hopefully we're moving in that right direction now um but in next month i have a report coming out that looks at hindu anti-hindu hate in schools 
which has been the first uh, piece of research that's ever been done in the UK into how anti-Hindu hate is actually manifesting. Um, the results have been really very concerning. We've seen that less than 1% of schools actually record any anti-Hindu hate bullying uh, in the last five years, whereas 51% of a survey of uh, 988 parents say their child has suffered some sort of anti-Hindu hate. And you know, one of the cases included a child having beef thrown at them. Um, yeah, so I'm very concerned about, about the results we've had. The, the, the report will have some heavy recommendations. So hopefully we can talk about that soon. Oh, we will definitely talk about it. I'm looking forward to that report coming out. I want to read it and, uh, uh, you know, it will be an absolute pleasure to have you back, Charlotte. I always love talking to you. You you, you speak your heart and you always stick to the facts. So I wish you nothing but success. And once again, thanks very, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Krishan. Have a good evening. Thank you. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's podcast up once again in the description of the podcast. It doesn't matter if you're watching this on YouTube or you're listening to this on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever. Uh, you'll have the Twitter handle of Charlotte. So go follow her on social media. Uh, I know some of you researchers also follow the podcast seriously. So if you are someone uh, and you want to connect with Charlotte, you can always go and connect with her on social media. She's you know a fellow researcher. If you want to support me, you know the drill. You can like this video, subscribe to the channel. You can become a member on YouTube, wherever. If you're an audio listener, please leave a nice review on iTunes or on Spotify. Leave some rating over there. You can buy the merch. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye.